Hello, welcome to episode 165 of the Mag Life Podcast. I'm Daniel Shaw. I'm here with Varg Freeborn. How you doing, Varg? I'm doing great, Daniel. How are you? Man, I'm doing awesome. The world is great. No bad things are happening today. Like It's all amazing out there. It's awesome, man. I don't know if that's actually true. It's probably not true. It's a crazy world that we live in. And in a crazy world, there's one man, one mission. Seriously, though, there are some things that can help us out in a crazy world that we're living in, especially a violent world that we seem to be living in right now. And that's controlling what we can control. One of those things that we can control is our own personal safety. And then if it comes to use of force, our weapon safety. And that's what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of safety, weapon safety, and not talking about how to store your gun in a bag, take it to the range. I'm not talking about, we're talking about self-defense, safety in the context of fighting with a gun. Anybody out there who's just taking a handgun class with me, for example, or a rifle class would know that at the beginning of the day, I say, hey, we're going to spend two days right now learning how to fight while following these safety rules. That's pretty much all that matters. It separates the rock stars from the groupies, weapons handling, weapons safety. There's a lot that goes into that, and we're going to dive in and talk about it. Varg and I talked a little bit offline a week or so ago or a few days ago about how we handle safety and how we we present it and talk about it and hold that standard in classes and training environments and what we think is important for fighting. And then I just thought it'd be a good podcast episode today because we were very similar on a lot of things, but we used quite different terminology. I'll go through my state rules here in a bit. I covered it before in a show about two years ago, just talking about my state rules. They've, the wording has changed a little bit in them since then, and Varg has a very similar mindset on it. I'll let you go first. Talk about your, uh, what you call it, advanced safety. In my classes, I emphasize what I call advanced safety, and I think that that's a huge component of what needs to be taught on the range, and that's why I teach it. I prioritize what I teach by what I think is important through my experience out there in the world and having seen a lot of violence and having been around a lot of really poor gun handlers in violent situations, there's a lot of things that I picked up on that I incorporated into what I teach just very naturally. One of the first things I look at is if you're talking about fighting with a gun, the most important aspect of being in a fight with a gun is to not add more harm to the situation than is already there. You're pulling your gun should not be making the situation worse in any way. We're here to solve problems, not create them. Yes, exactly. So the way that we make the situation worse or create a greater amount of harm is by not adhering to a level of safety that's conducive to keeping people safe. And when we talk about the standard safety rules, the four or the three from the NRA or the big four that people use, those things, those are circumstantial And I explained that on the range, but there's modifications that need to be made to those. And I know a lot of people don't like to stray from that. And they're like, well, it gets too complicated. And I'm like, well, fighting with a gun is kind of a complicated thing. And if you can't think on a somewhat complex level, then your ability to operate on a complex level under pressure is probably not going to be that great. We need to start pushing ourselves in that direction by thinking a little bit more on a complex level. So when I have a weapon out in a situation in public, one of the biggest concerns is how to move around other people who are moving unpredictably. And I have a weapon out and I have to control that muzzle to not muzzle any of those people that don't need to be shot. This could be family members or people that are with me, or they could be innocent bystanders or people in the public. 
they're running, they're moving, they're panicking, they don't know what to do. I've got a weapon out. One of the good examples that I bring up is the church shooting that happened in Texas that got caught on video here some months back when a lot of the security guys in the church were armed and they drew their guns out. One guy nailed the bad guy from the back of the church and put him down, but he had already shot two or three people. It was the aftermath that we could learn the most from because you see all of these security guys and they pull their firearms out and you've got a church full of now scared people because people have been shot in this room. So now people are like panicking. Some are on the floor, some are standing up, some are frozen, some are beginning to move. And you got guys running through the room with their pistols out and they're pointed in all these different directions. There's no standard of movement and control amongst this group of people. And there were a lot of people that got muzzled, right? And so mitigating those risks is very easy to do if you train for that. So advanced safety is something that is required. If you're going to fight with a gun, train to fight with a gun, you have to train advanced safety. Moving around other people with muzzle, controlling your muzzle in chaotic situations, the ability to keep control of your weapon during contact with other people. So if people are running, people slam into you, is that going to cause your weapon to fly up? Are you going to have a reaction with your finger sliding into the trigger if somebody slams into you? Like all of those things need to be worked out. That's the basics, the general overview of what I cover with the advanced safety part. Well, stay on that church shooting for just a second. It's not necessarily a terrible thing that people are getting muzzled if they're getting muzzled on purpose because they're unknowns and they may get muzzled and get a command until those unknowns become known. That, okay, this is not my threat. The threat is someone else. That happens. But that was not what was happening that right, day. Right. No, I be clear totally about understand. Totally agree. But at the same time, if we have that lack of technique, lack of understanding, lack of purpose in our placement and carry and transport and ready position, whether it's using a rifle or a handgun, to the observer, to someone entering that room that just heard gunshots and knows the people have been shot, and they see somebody mishandling a firearm in a lot of ways. That does not put across into my mind if I'm the person entering the room, like, okay, this person is well-trained. They're probably responding to this incident. My first thought, maybe that looks like my bad guy right now. I'm a big believer in always looking and sounding like a good guy when you have a gun out in a public environment. That is a part of safety. It's not exactly weapons handling. It totally ties into weapons handling. And I've asked law enforcement officers all over the nation, if you're responding to an active shooter and you see people handling firearms and moving in ways that you just described in that church shooting in the aftermath there, or you see somebody moving with a purpose, handling their weapon in a way that is safe for everyone around them and safe for themselves in a way that looks like they have some level of training and understanding of, of what to do when that gun is out in a public environment. Officers tell me all over the country that he might get commands, but he's not getting bullets. And the first thing I'm probably going to start doing, I might think that this is an, an officer from somewhere else. Maybe, maybe a different shift. Maybe I just don't know this guy or it's from a different agency. I'm thinking law enforcement officer to begin with. And I think that's a layer of safety. It's not foolproof just because you're looking and sounding like a good guy and good weapons handling, but it is a layer of safety to keep yourself from getting shot by that armed citizen or responding law enforcement officer or somebody else on a security detail. If we're talking about a church situation like we just described. Absolutely. And the most important elements in the beginning of that are muzzle, movement, and manipulations, right? And the way you perform those is going to definitely send a signal. And if the right people are watching, it's going to, it could possibly alert them that you are trained and, you know, potentially could have them watching further for further action. 
rather than just reacting and maybe shooting you right away. But what's more important about that is that it's not a rolling the dice when you control your muzzle and you control your movement, you control your manipulations in a chaotic or stressful situation. You're not rolling the dice because you're controlling it, right? So it's not just a gamble as much as it is you being in control of the situation. If you talk about muzzle control during movement and we talk about ways to manage your space, manage the muzzle, keeping control of the weapon, if there's going to be contact or you're in a potentially contact situation, how to achieve two-handed control on the weapon with muzzle control. One of the big things I talk about is manipulations, how manipulations change. We lived in this world where the cool guy thing was workspace, 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 right? And then you realize that, you know, in some situations, workspace isn't the best place for your muzzle to go. And some situations straight out is not the best place or straight down. Sometimes you have to manipulate your weapon in a downward position. Sometimes it needs to be up to be able to change like that on the fly and understand how to manipulate your weapon in those different positions as the environment dictates is truly a mark of someone who's becoming accomplished with their weapon and is able to probably effectively fight with that weapon. Yeah, position tool does not solve every single problem, contrary to some SWAT team's beliefs. I've had them in front of me where they use it all day long, constantly. Sewell, no other position exists. High compressed ready, high ready, holster, or temple index, any of these different carries and ready positions, none of them solve every single problem. It's being fluid and switching to the one you need for that given moment for whatever's happening right there. The way I explain it in class is I need to be carrying, transporting, ready to deploy my gun in a way that is safe for me, safe for everybody else around me, but still lethal for the bad guy, right? So I need to be able to put bullets on this bad guy very quickly. So being in my holster with a cover garment over it may be the most safest place for me. So I'm not moving through a public environment with a gun out. Having that my gun hidden is the safest place for me, but it may not be the safest for everybody else if there's somebody trying to murder people in that place. It may not be the most advantageous position for my gun to be in if I might need to deploy it as soon as I go around this corner. Having that gun out in some other carrier transport a ready position may be a much more advantageous as far as the fight's concerned, but I'm putting more risk on myself because I'm carrying that. So there's a balance there. And this balance is constantly shifting based on the people around you, people running toward exits, your movement. What are you moving through? A crowd of people trying to get to an exit. A lot of different factors come into play. So having a wide variety and not just knowledge, but understanding of these different ready positions and carries and how they apply to your environment and how you should be keying off your environment and fluidly changing between those ready positions to keep those factors in mind or to keep with those factors of being safe for yourself, safe for everyone else around you, but also being able to provide lethal force to the bad guy. Absolutely. That's a great way to look at it too, is, you know, safe for yourself and other innocents, dangerous for the bad guy. That's a really good way to look at it. And that's a good standard to hold all of the actions and drills by. You bring up a good point about training positions and how ridiculous it used to be. I haven't seen it much lately, but of course that might be because I don't really read things on social media much anymore. But we used to be in this big debate about high ready versus low ready. Uh, you remember that? When it used to be the hot topic. And Oh yeah, right when we weren't busy arguing about nine versus 45 and everything else, it still happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when we'd get these debates and, and I would watch and I'd be like, have you guys ever been in a fight? Because if you really have, I don't know if you would debate this because sometimes this guy's right. Sometimes that guy's right, but both of you are wrong sometimes. 
And what we try to do is not be wrong that much. It's best to combine that knowledge and say, if I'm running a rifle inside of a typical residential structure and there are people upstairs, do I need to be having that muzzle pointed up a lot? You know, maybe not. If I'm upstairs and there are people downstairs, do I have that muzzle pointed down a lot? Maybe not. Mitigating the risk for the environment that you're in is understanding it. If you go to shoot house training, there's typically in most shoot houses of live fire, there's a yellow line somewhere up the wall that your muzzle is not supposed to cross. And if you did typical workspace in that shoot house, you would break that rule and you would get DQ'd out of that house because your muzzle is up across that line. And some people call that artificiality of training, but there are situations out in the wild where you will be put under those same constraints and whether it's muzzle up, muzzle down, muzzle straight forward, these things are going to happen. These situations are going to arise. You're at Dairy Queen, you know, an active shooter breaks out and there's a whole baseball team of seven-year-olds having their ice cream there. Sole position and muzzle down is probably not going to be cool with a bunch of three foot tall humans running around. Responding to an active shooter in an elementary school. Yeah, Exactly. Or any kind of shooting in a public environment where in the absence of cover, people are intuitively grabbing the ground. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So the situation dictates the tactics and the strategies and the, and the methods and the techniques. And that's how you should operate all the time and think about that. You should think constantly, what does my environment call for me to do to keep this safe for me and others around me while still being effectively dangerous for the bad guy, as, as Daniel puts it? Years ago, I, I rewrote my safety rules. You know, growing up, I had safety rules similar to the Marine Corps safety rules. In the Marine Corps, I actually had to recite and explain and teach. It always started with treat every weapon as if it were loaded. You know, I love this idea of treating every weapon as if it were loaded. I despise cold ranges. I've seen more negligent discharges, more people almost get hurt, more dangerous situations occur because on a cold range, when everybody assumes that every gun is unloaded, every gun is empty. How we have these negligent discharges on cold ranges, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't like cold ranges where we unload every single time, every time we do anything. People will come back, start filling magazines, want to show somebody next to them their Glock 19. Like, we've all seen your Glock 19. Nobody cares. We know what they look like. But people still want to pull it out. And the worst thing that can ever happen, in my opinion, I don't get upset about many things, but this mindset really bothers me, and it gets my heart rate up immediately when it happens. When somebody has their gun out in the admin area or filling magazines where everybody's gear is or whatever else, and they start just pointing it around at different people. It's okay back there because their gun's unloaded. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're pointing the gun at everybody. And he looks at me and says, it's unloaded. That's when people get hurt. There have been so many accidents happening over the years by guns that are understood or thought to be unloaded. That mindset of my gun is unloaded is, is a horrible mindset or that I can treat it differently now because I think it's unloaded or I just cleared it. So now I can treat it like a very, very bad mindset to be in for any kind of weapons handling. So if I've got that kind of mindset out there, Let's say I'm this, their guru for some new shooters that came out to the range. and They have never had anybody teach them anything about guns in their lives. And here I am, this guy, explaining these safety rules. And I'm saying, treat every weapon as if it were loaded. Never point a weapon at anything you don't intend to destroy. And I tell them those two things. And then I'm like, hey, man, you really suck at shooting handguns. And you really got a trigger problem. You're moving your body. You're moving your gun when you're pressing the trigger. That's why you're hitting low and all this stuff. I need you to go home. And you should have some, some dry fire practice. And here's how to do it. Explain to them how to do some dry fire on a light switch on their wall, on the TV or whatever else. So I'm giving them a condition where it's okay to violate two safety rules. Now, most people have heard at some point that it's okay when you violate one. I mean, it's not okay. We shouldn't. But if you violate two, then it's something that's catastrophic happened. 
I just gave them a condition where they can go home and it's okay to violate two rules. Rules are things that should not be violated, that shouldn't be broken. But now they go home and they're thinking, well, my gun's unloaded. I cleared it twice. I don't have any ammunition in the room with me. I'm totally safe. Now I can do that dry fire thing that instructor, that coach told me to do, which I think is great. Sidebar there. You should have dry fire practice in your regimen there. But after I just told them if they violate two rules, something catastrophic is going to happen. You never should violate two rules. Okay, now go home and violate these two rules. It's okay as long as you make sure your gun's clear and your ammunition is not near you. Then you can violate these two. I believe that takes power from the rest of the rules. People start thinking subconsciously, perhaps even consciously, that it's okay to violate more rules. Maybe there's other situations. Okay, now I'm in a fight. It's okay to violate some of these rules because I'm in a fight right now and my life depends on it. Other people's lives depend on it. So I can, I can sacrifice a little bit of my safety. I don't think that's the case. I don't think we outgrow them. I don't think a situation occurs where it's okay to violate these rules. I don't think it works that way. I think we should have the safety built into absolutely everything that we do. And we should choose words, phrases, and safety rules that help us convey that idea and not create a situation where it's okay and it's acceptable to violate safety rules. So how should we deal with that situation when you have caveats like that? How do you talk to your students when you say, because I know what I say, I'm curious to, to hear what you say directly about that. When you say these caveats, don't put your finger on the trigger unless you're taking an intentional shot and don't muzzle anything unless you intend to destroy it. And, you know, don't treat the gun as if it's unloaded because you think it's unloaded or you even if you've checked it's unloaded, always treat it as if it's loaded. But the caveat is, of course, now you're going to dry fire at home. So you're muzzling in presumably unsafe directions and you're pulling the trigger inside of your house, all of these types of things that are breaking those rules. How do you present those caveats? I talked to them similar to the way I just explained it just now about how the safety rules that I disagree with and how they remove power from the other rules and how there's no situation where it's okay to violate these rules. And I present my own safety rules that, that are not infallible. I mean, they're not perfect. I change words here and there. Sometimes I've changed like whole rules and added to them and, and subtracted from them. But the idea that there are times when it is okay to dry fire. You know, I'll explain that. I won't make a blanket statement of treat every weapon as if we're loaded all the time, except for this time, or never point a weapon at anything, don't destroy, unless you're doing this. But I'll explain that whole idea of how these safety rules work and how dry fire and how reality, how, how they work when they meet reality. Just give that whole, whole situation. But then I cover my own safety rules. And these are defensive safety rules. These are fighting safety rules, not NRA, always keep the gun unloaded in a case, you know, whatever they are. Probably just lost my NRA credentials. But anyway, always, always, always. So my rule number one, no matter what situation you're in, whether you're, you're in your house, whether you're in a gas station, whether you have your child in front of you and you have to draw your gun, no matter what's going on, be relentlessly aware of your muzzle, ensuring it's always pointed in the relative safest direction. That's my rule on the range. That's my rule out there in life. So it doesn't matter if I have a berm downrange. That is not always a safe direction. I jump in front of the line and say, come in, let's talk about this thing a lot. I step in front of the targets. I'm in front of the shooters a lot, a lot of the students a lot. The berm is not a safe direction on the range. Safe direction is relative to yourself, everybody else, and your bad guy. There is no purposeful, always constant safe direction out there in reality in any situation, no matter where you're at. It doesn't work that way. And I need to be relentlessly aware of my muzzle, ensuring it's always pointed in the relative safest direction not when my gun's out and I'm giving commands, not just when I'm shooting at a bad guy or, or a violent offender or whatever. If I'm drawing my gun from the holster and I put my hand around that grip and I begin to bring that gun out of the holster, I need to understand what path that muzzle is going to cross to get to where either my ready position, my carry, or presenting it to my target. 
if my child is in the path there, I need to make a movement or move my child. If there is an innocent person in that, I need to explosively move to some other way so I can clear a foreground or a background. I need to make sure that I am relentlessly aware of my muzzle, ensuring it's always pointed in the relative safest direction, no matter what action I'm taking at any time, whether it's backfilling my magazines in a class or in a fight at a gas station. That's interesting. My number one rule that I present in, in when I do my safety briefing on range, every range, every class, every range trip begins with a safety briefing and a medical briefing, obviously. My number one rule in the safety briefing is that it is your responsibility to always know the condition of your weapon at all times, no exceptions. And there's a lot of times I will train in certain ways that will set the student up to load their weapon and inject a live round out onto the ground, right? While that's a small misstep that doesn't really have much consequence, it reminds them, and I take that opportunity to point it out that, hey, you didn't remember the condition of your weapon in that moment. You can have all the excuses you want, but just the reality, the, the bottom line is that you threw a mag in there and you forgot that there was a round in the chamber and you went ahead and chambered around, right? There's all these instances. And there's one story that I like to tell. It's very quick and it's something that happened with a SWAT officer back in my old state. We used to train. Everybody was all in the same training circles and he was at home getting dry fire one day and he was dry firing with his doorknob as a target. So he's using a little two and a half inch circle doorknob and he's dry firing on the, you know, racket, dry fire, racket, dry fire, racket, dry fire. So he gets done dry firing, loads his weapon up, throws the mag in, chambers around. As soon as he chambers around, the phone rings. He picks up the phone. He gets into a 10-minute phone call, hangs up the phone, gets one more rep on the doorknob. And it was the last rep that doorknob ever seen because he had to replace it because he blew it off the door. That type of thing can happen. You know, you can be in a situation where you're cleaning your weapon, you finish, you loading it, and then you hear your child scream from outside and bloody horror and you, you run out and they've fallen and ripped their knee open and now there's this big drama and all this thing happened and your mind is completely distracted and then there's a loaded weapon unholstered, number one, laying on your workbench back there. Number two, do you remember what condition it's in when you come back to it? All these types of things can happen in our lives. So every time you pick up a weapon, I have a rule. Another rule on my range is that don't handle a weapon if it's not in your master grip. I don't want to see all these funky, weird ways of picking up guns backwards and from the muzzle and from a backwards grip on the handle, all this type of stuff. I feel you. I don't use that as a rule, but I totally explain that. Yeah. We're holding on to a trigger guard, picking up six magazines and a water bottle and something else. Yeah, yeah. That's not how we handle guns. No, that's unconscious. And I catch people doing things like that. Or another one for me is grocery carry, where they just let the gun drop to the side and the arm goes limp. And I say, that's that's how you carry a gallon of milk. That's not how you carry a weapon. When you drop that arm, you let go of the muscular control of that arm. And all you're doing is holding the gun and the arm flails down by your side. That gun has just left your consciousness. You've dropped that gun into a position where it is, it is no longer in your consciousness anymore. So it's master grip, full muscular control, intentional yep. awareness of the gun when it's in your hand. That's how we start knowing the condition of it at all times. Intentional, definitely intentional handling of the weapon when it's in your hand. Those types of things are what begin us on the path of being aware enough to have that complexity in our safety. And get away from these, as you say, like these 
absolute rules that are like never, never, never. And the world just doesn't work like that. This is a complex situation. You have complex problems that you have to solve when you're going into a fight with a gun. And it's going to get very, very confusing for some people. If you've never trained, if you've never been in force on force, if you've never been in CQB training and you have to jump into a home defense situation and there's moving parts to this that you don't understand and rooms open up to you super fast that you never thought about before and all of this stuff is coming at you in the midst of all of this, you still have to intentionally control that gun and have complete control of yourself at the same time. That's, that's a lot to do. That's a lot to put on a person. That is a lot to do. And that's why it's like that self-control thing we talk about, the mission thing we talk about, everything. This requires constant practice. It's something that needs to be present, something that we're working on and getting better at all the time. I see people in rifle class, when we start doing some handgun stuff in rifle class, there's people who have great rifle skills who don't have great handgun skills. And it's very easy to make a mistake with a handgun. It's a bit harder to make a mistake and muzzle somebody else with a long rifle. It is super easy to make a mistake with a handgun and hurt somebody else or endanger yourself. Absolutely. I wish that we could introduce people to weapons handling through rifles and then into pistols. I mean, it's such a nice transition. It's a lot easier to understand the muzzle thing with a rifle than it is with the pistol. It's, it changes so quickly. You can turn around and where the head goes, the body goes and the gun follows. And it's just, I've seen so many instances. As an instructor, you know, having done it for pretty solid for the last 10 years, I do in the morning empty weapons flow drills for about 45 minutes or so teaching movement and muzzle control and things like that. And that accomplishes a couple of things. First of all, it gets people warmed up and it gets their safety heads turned on. And it gives me a very clear indication of who I'm working with that day. And if I've got anybody that's a problem that isn't quite getting it, I can place them in the line for safety purposes where they need to be. And I can keep a close eye of me or my AI can be on top of it. So it gives me a clear indicator of who I've got in the class and what type of level they're on. And it also gives the students a chance to warm up and get themselves tuned up before we start putting rounds in the gun. I like to do things like that and just try to accommodate people and bring them up to speed as much as possible while not letting them sacrifice the quality or safety of the class in any way at all. My next rule is pretty simple, pretty standard. Probably you have one similar. Most people do. Keep your finger off the trigger and outside of the trigger guard until you're on target and you have made the conscious decision to fire. This is my target. This is my bad guy. I need to shoot right now. That is when my finger goes on the trigger. My finger doesn't go on the trigger while I'm presenting my gun to the target. My finger doesn't go on the trigger while I'm changing levels. Finger should not be on trigger when I'm moving from position to position. My finger should not be on the trigger when I'm explosively moving laterally to get to a better vantage point, better field of fire, better field of view, whatever. My finger should not be on the trigger unless I am in the act of shooting. If it's not time to shoot and I'm not in the act of shooting right now, finger shouldn't be on the trigger. So keep your finger off the trigger and outside the trigger guard until you're on target and you have made the conscious decision to fire. Pretty standard. My third one, I have a few caveats here on this third one. I do believe that there are situations where this rule may be modified slightly. So I have basically the same rule as the trigger finger with the safety. Say I'm running rifles because most of my handguns don't have safeties on them. This applies mostly to, to rifles or handguns with safeties on them. I will keep the weapon on safe until I am on target and have made the conscious decision to fire. Now, that is the same thing as a safety. The last thing I'm going to do is flick the safety lever down, and my finger goes on the trigger at the same time. I'm not even losing time on this. 
I've seen it so many times where setting up force on force, shoot house stuff, especially in the Marine Corps, I can make this happen on call with like any platoon in the Marine Corps today right now if I wanted to in a force on force scenario where they run the same house, the same rooms, the same everything over and over again. And they've got a bad guy in the same spot. And then they roll in and they get tired of getting whacked. So they'll have their gun on fire thinking they're going to save a little bit of time because they haven't put the training and the work in beforehand to be just as fast manipulating that safety as they are having that gun on fire. They're still at the point where they think having the gun on safe slows them down, which should not be the case. You have a skill deficit right there. You have a problem with your skill level if you believe that the safety slows you down because it does not. It shouldn't. If not, you need to put in some more work out there. Newer shooters have trouble putting their gun on safe and off safe. So having that gun on safe, putting it on safe and taking it off safe is a skill. From the act of firing to a ready position or carry, to another position, having that gun on safe edge before you move, being able to do that quickly is a skill to develop. It's something to work on. If I created a situation where they keep going to the same room, keep getting shot by the same bad guy every single time, eventually they'll start going in there with their finger on the trigger, weapon on fire. The next thing you know, I got this guy with no gun whatsoever. He's just standing there with both legs spread and both of his hands out as far as he can, and he gets shot almost every single time. Not having anything in place of that decision-making that's this whole new accountable that's like, all right, I've got to make sure this is my bad guy. I've got to identify and not just shoot. I've shot many no-shoot targets in shoot houses by making that kind of mistake. My only caveat to this one is if I am in a situation where I know 100% for sure that this is my target, this target needs to be shot right now, I cannot wait a second, I can't do anything else, I I need to get bullets on this target as fast as possible or they're going to kill this other person or whatever's going to happen, develop your own scenario in your own mind. I do not have a problem with a trained person presenting their rifle to a target, knowing that they're going to fire as soon as they see red stuff on bad stuff, flipping that gun on fire as they're presenting. Given that they've already cleared their foreground, they've cleared their background, and they have positively identified that they're going to shoot this target, and this is their target right here in those situations. That's not to say that every time you do an up drill, you're practicing putting your gun on fire every time you present your gun. Because you're going to end up putting your gun on fire and your finger on trigger. And you're going to do that to a target that doesn't need to get shot. And a percentage of the time, you're going to shoot that no-shoot target. Absolutely. And you see that very predictably in shoot house CQB situations. It's, as you say, it's very predictable. And it's finding that fine line between that readiness without crossing that line into taking action before you are supposed to take action, right? And that positive identification part of it, and then understanding, comprehending what it is you're looking at, processing it properly, make an informed decision while controlling the weapon, the muzzle, the safety, the trigger, all of these components at the same time. That sounds pretty complex to me. What do you think? Yeah, there's a lot happening. A lot going on. A lot going on there. So when people say you're making it too complex in training, sometimes that's true. If somebody says... I have a 16-step draw stroke, probably too complex, yeah. But if we're talking about fighting with a weapon around unknowns, innocence, moving people in known or unknown environments, that kind of stuff, yeah, it gets really complex really quickly. I agree with that rule. I present it in a very similar way, focusing a little bit more on muzzling, intentional muzzling for control or identification purposes and we'll go pretty deep into that stuff. I'll jump into the next one though, because the target role is pretty important for me. Do a modification on that and I present it as you should always know your target, what's behind it, 
what's in front of it and what's flanking it on both sides. And the way that I present it like that is because in a situation in, let's say, your local favorite restaurant, you draw your gun out to shoot an active shooter. If you're not aware of someone who's between you and the shooter, which is in front of your target, if you're not aware of what's behind your target, who's behind him, what family is in the booth that's directly behind this guy that you're going to start blasting rounds towards. If you're not aware of who's flanking your line of fire and that are standing in your field of fire, but your direct line of fire to the bad guy is only three to six feet away from these people. And in a split second, they could choose to run and be directly in your line of fire. So once you get caught up into a shot sequence and you're like, boom, 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 boom. In that amount of time, as shots start banging off and people are panicking and running, how many people could run in your line of fire? There's plenty of evidence of this. There's one good YouTube surveillance video from a gas station where a guy's with his daughter. Both of them are out of the vehicle, putting gas in the vehicle. Gunman comes from the rear of the vehicle and he's near the front and the gunman already has a gun out. The father automatically goes to the gun and begins fighting and fights his way over to use the gas pump as cover. And he's in a raging gun battle with this guy. Where's the daughter? The daughter's directly in between them. The guy left his daughter out in the open. He took cover because that was a natural instinctive move that he didn't train out of himself. And he left his daughter hanging out there in the middle of a gunfight that was raging over her head. That type of thing is going to happen if you don't have these things ingrained to you. So knowing what's in front of your target, behind it, and flanking it on both sides before you engage gives you the chance to make your adjustments and understand that all these other rules we just talked about still apply, and you need to find a way to make them apply in that situation while still being effective. I explained it very similarly. The idea of, of knowing where everybody is around you is more of an explanation that is my rule. We're getting into my four states rule, which is be sure of your target and ensure that it's foreground and background remain clear. I really like the idea of, of including what's flanking the target in that. I don't have that built into my rule currently. I do like it, but I do explain it in a way that when I say remain clear, be sure of your target, ensure that it's foreground and background remain clear. When I explain why I use that word remain there, it's because maybe that background's clear right now. Maybe the foreground's clear right now, but the exit is to your right and you're shooting this evildoer <laughs> to your direct front and people are going to try to break through that exit. They're going to be behind that bad guy. They're going to be possibly between you and that bad guy. There's no telling which direction people are going to go when they're in the middle of hysteria and screaming and, and noise and everything else is happening. Smoke's beginning to fill this you know, not so well ventilated room that you're in. From all the gunfire, it's not like outside of the range where you shoot and the smoke goes away immediately. There's a lot of chaos happening very, very quickly. So it's my responsibility. It's no one else's responsibility. If I'm sending rounds in the atmosphere, it's my responsibility to ensure that my foregrounds and backgrounds remain clear. And that would include having an understanding of the people flanking this fight that's happening right now, where the exit is, what are the innocent and the bystander people out of there, what are they most likely to do? Are they most likely to run to this exit, go to the ground, go to some other exit? Is there something I can do to help control that in the middle of all that? So it's my responsibility, and I can use whatever tool it is, whether it's verbal, anything else at the same time, to help ensure that my foreground and background remain clear. But I also, one of my biggest tools is moving my feet, getting to a more dominant position that enables me to have my foreground and background clear. 
But none of that is going to happen unless I am aware of what's flanking that target, what's in the foreground, what's in the background, and have an understanding of what they're most likely to do in uh, the event that bullets start flying back and forth. That makes a lot of sense. Both the ways that we explain it, I think it gets the point across pretty much the same way, is that there's some important aspects of that problem that need to be focused on. It sounds like we both prioritize them at or near the top, and that's the important part. One of the big things that I work on, especially right from the beginning of the day with weapons flow and something that I try to pound into people's heads is the whole concept of getting online or in front of. And so understanding that with law enforcement officers, being able to get online with your partner, if they're involved in a shooting, you see so many situations where a cop will draw their weapon up from behind their partner or behind other cops. And now there's this situation where his line of fire is two, three, four feet at the most, maybe from the head of his partner. And all his partner has to do is take one quick step to the left and he could be in the line for a headshot. That type of thing happens all the time with law enforcement. And so the concept of getting online, if someone is with you, if you're out with your friends or your spouse, you all carry guns, more guns into the fight obviously is a contributing factor to winning in most situations. If you can do that, and it's justifiable to do so, you should do that. But there's a way to do that that's safer, and that's to get online with your partner, not anybody drawing behind them and understanding to stay online with them or have lateral distance that mitigates the problem of being muzzled by each other, right? So getting online or having lateral distance, and then understanding also if you have someone with you who's not a fighter or there's someone that pops up in front of you between your target and you, it may be prudent to get in front of that person. You can't have a raging gun battle over top of your daughter. It's just not advisable, right? So get online or get in front of are two concepts that I try to put across in understanding movement and understanding how to read your environment and place yourself in the best possible position to not cause harm to yourself or others while being effective against the bad guy. You just described a situation. I explained earlier that at the beginning of my class, I'll say, hey, we're going to spend two days learning how to fight while following these safety rules. And people are like, okay, this is going to be boring. It's going to be two days of safety. But you just gave it a great example of how weapons handling, and they're not necessarily safety rules, but it's it's good, safe practice, ties directly into combat power. You know, if I go into a room in a team-based environment, another shooter with me, if you're a law enforcement officer, you and another officer go in, an armed citizen, whatever it is, if I'm in a gunfight, how many guns do I want to have in that fight if I have two available? As many guns as you can, which in that case would be two. <laughs> right. I would, I would have as many good guys and guns as I can in that fight. So if I'm not online or I don't allow my partner to move online and I'm not being a good partner and I'm holding them back, I am bringing more risk to myself. So not having good weapons handling, not having good positioning and understanding uh, of, of all that and being in the right place and, and the training that, that it takes to have that and recognize it quickly, to, to do it quickly and not have a lull on that, to get two guns in the fight immediately, to engage that fight that's happening right now, uh, to be a part of it, to get two guns in the fight, it's a safety thing. And uh, I can't engage right now. And, if, and if, I, if we're shooting and one guy takes three steps forward for no reason, you've seen it in the shoot house, like it doesn't make any sense why they're moving right now. They don't have any purpose for the action that they're taking. There's no reason, no good reason for it to happen, but they start doing things. And it's, a lot, it's just a lack of training. They feel like they should do something or they're replicating something they saw on a movie or something like that. Then you just cut off your buddy's fires. And now you've only got one gun in the fight. So now your buddy's got to make a movement to get back into another position, and he's got to control you and solve another problem. You're creating more problems. you got to be a good partner 
and you got to do your best to allow everyone to be able to get in that fight. Uh, that's going to keep you safer and everybody else around you. Absolutely. And that's, that's the kicker right there is the compounding of combat power, bringing the biggest force you can to the fight. And when you say if you cut your partner out of it, you're endangering yourself more, absolutely, because there's one less gun in the fight that could be. You're also endangering your partner because if you go down quickly, now they have to deal with you suddenly dropping, and that's going to be a psychological draw on them in that fight in most cases for most people. On top of that, now they have to fight over your body and think about rendering care and try. now there's a casualty to try to get out of there. And all this other problems just got worse for them that you could have mitigated by just having them get online with you or understanding you had to make space. That's why when you do CQB training, especially team-based, everyone has a job and you do your job so that the other person can do their job. And that's how that works, right? And positioning is very purposeful and intentional because it allows space for the other work to be done in most cases. And that's something that civilians can learn as well and should learn. And I've been bringing more of that into my force on force classes and the class coming up in October in Alliance, I'll be doing exactly that with situations where people or husband and wife are out with and they both carry weapons or friends that are together all the time or, you know, cousins that are getting together all the time and they all carry weapons, like how to deal with active shooters or robberies, stuff like that. It's not necessarily a CQB team-based room clearing environment, but you still have the same problems to deal with. You still have the same issues and more and more people carry guns and hang out with people that carry guns and their friends and get their family and everybody else. Now they all have concealed carries. You're out together with guns. You have multiple guns out. If something happens and you don't understand how to work together, or at least at the very least to be able to get online with each other and stay online with each other, then you're making the problem worse at that point. And at the very least, you should be that person who does have that understanding because one, one warrior, one single person, who is, is well-trained and has an understanding of all these things and the confidence to verbalize and use physical leadership and verbal leadership and whatever else can be a force multiplier uh, if you and your friends are out and maybe they're not that well-trained, but you are. Uh, you will be a force multiplier in that situation without a doubt, but obviously much better if, if you held your friends to a higher standard and got them out there in some training classes. And I'm not talking about just shooting classes. That's great to go out and just practice shooting but get into something that's engaging much more than the easy part. Varg, anything else to add? We've been about 45 minutes, a lot more to talk about here. I'm sure these things will come up constantly in the podcast. This is something that both of us are, are very passionate about and push very hard in training and, uh, and discussion. Nah, it was a really good episode. I think we covered a lot. At least should be getting some people thinking, you know, maybe they haven't been exposed to this level of safety or this level of experience in terms of thinking about how complex the fight can get and how to structure training for that. Guys, that was episode number 165. You may have noticed that our graphic has changed. Everything else, we are officially now the MagLife. Guys, thanks for listening and really appreciate you. Until next time, MagLife out. <laughs>